Well, let us turn in our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, and we will be considering together in verses 1 through 10. Now, before I say anything else, let me just say that uh, about five years ago, I preached a sermon very similar to the one you're going to hear this morning. Uh, I thought the likelihood of any of you remembering what I said five years ago is very slim, and the truth hasn't really changed. And so, what I wanted to say, I already said, so I didn't see the need to change much of what I said. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. As we think about the Reformation and this particular pillar of the Reformation, known as sola gratia, or grace alone, let me set the stage by quoting J.I. Packer. Listen to what he said, and I quote, To the Reformers... The crucial question was not simply whether God justifies believers without works of the law. It was the broader question whether sinners are wholly helpless in their sin and whether God is to be thought of as saving them by free, unconditional, invincible grace alone, not only justifying them for Christ's sake when they come to faith, but also raising them from the dead of sin by his quickening spirit in order to bring them to faith, here was the crucial issue, says Packer. Whether God is the author, not merely of justification, but also of faith. Whether in the last analysis, Christianity is a religion of utter reliance on God for salvation and all things necessary to it, or of self-reliance and self-effort, end quote. Packer is helping us see that the core issue when it comes to the reformational doctrine that salvation is by grace alone was not whether God is involved in our salvation. That was not the issue. The Roman Catholic Church at that time and even now had a place for grace in their theology, much like many other religions in the world. So the issue was not whether we need grace in order to be saved. Most would say, yes, we need it. The real issue in the Reformation was this, how much grace do we need to be reconciled to God? How are we to understand God's involvement in our salvation? Is grace a divine helping hand that allows us to do our best in order to be saved, a sort of platform upon which we can be allowed to perform before God in order to be saved, or is grace a definitive work of God 
alone. Now, the prevalent view during the time of the Reformation was expressed in a well-known slogan originally written in Latin. God will not deny grace to those who do their best. God will not deny grace to those who do their best. The modern version says, God helps those who help themselves. Then, as you can see, there was a place for grace in the Catholic understanding of salvation. There was an idea of grace, but in the mind of the Reformers, the Catholic view was a deformed view of grace that needed to be reformed. For the Reformers, grace was more than mere divine help. The bottom line was this. The battle fought by the Reformers regarding the issue of grace in salvation was about answering one question. Does grace make salvation possible? Or does it actually save? Does grace make salvation possible or does it actually save? Does grace make you savable, but you have to do your part? Or does grace accomplish salvation without your cooperation? To put it in more modern vernacular and also to set this whole conversation in stark contrast to some modern beliefs such as that of the Mormon church, the question goes, Are we saved by grace alone, as the Bible says, or are we saved by grace, quote, after all we can do, as the Book of Mormon says in 2 Nephi 25-23? Big difference. One thing I know, both cannot be true at the same time. Here's what I mean. The whole debate concerning grace, whether ancient, medieval, or modern, boils down to this. Salvation is either monergistic, meaning it comes from one single source, namely God's grace alone, and it is entirely the work of grace, or salvation is synergistic, meaning it comes from a combination of both God's grace and human effort or human will. No other alternatives are given to us. These are the two options So let's see how the reformers answer the question. But before, let's look at the historical roots of sola gratia, the historical roots. We're going to go way beyond the Reformation, way before the Reformation, to the beginning parts of the 5th century, in which some of the most important theological issues or ideas developed, which would in turn influence the direction of the Reformation in the 16th century. One of those ideas that developed in the 5th century was known as Pelagianism. How many of you have heard of Pelagianism? Not plagiarism. Pelagianism. Pelagianism. Pelagianism derives its name from a theologian by the name of Pelagius. He developed the idea that original sin, the sin of Adam, was not transmitted from generation to generation or from person to person. Therefore, we are not really born with a sinful nature. There is really no original sin within us. What did Pelagius say? We are basically good people from birth. We are basically good people from birth. What was the problem with Adam? The problem with Adam, according to Pelagius, was that he provided us with a bad example. A bad example. Jesus, on the other hand, he does what? He gave us a good example. 
So in Adam, you have a bad example. Don't follow him. Follow the example of Jesus. Therefore, you have within you what it takes to make the right choices and follow the good example of Jesus and go to heaven because you are basically a good person. There's nothing stopping you from reaching your full spiritual potential. The only thing standing in your way is your own bad decisions. Sin is simply to make the wrong choice, but you are not predisposed to do so by an evil nature because there is no such thing as original sin within you. You are free from the pollution of sin. Evil is outside of you. Evil is outside of you. That was Pelagius' doctrine. In response to this idea, another man came onto the scene. His name was Aurelius Augustine. For Augustine, original sin was not just something that belonged to the past, as if it had nothing to do with our present, like Pelagius thought. Pelagius saw sin as a mini-bomb whose effects remain within the confines of Eden, the Garden of Eden. Augustine saw sin as an atomic bomb whose effects went everywhere. In Augustine's thinking, Original sin reached down to the very core of our being and affected every area of our lives. Augustine applied this doctrine even to kings. Some people would argue that kings were above correction because they were second only to God. Even if they made a mistake, you just leave them alone because they're kings. But Augustine promoted the view that sin had so affected human life that even kings needed to be called into account and therefore their power must be limited limited power for kings. Interesting idea, huh? Why? Because sin has affected everything about us. If you don't limit the power of kings, they will become corrupted and they will abuse their power. Wow, what a revolutionary thought, huh? As you can see, the Augustinian doctrine of sin had really far-reaching implications even for politics, even for politics. So the fundamental problem of men, according to Augustine, was not an external bad example that we need not follow, but an internal evil disposition of the heart inherited from Adam from which we cannot escape called, three-letter word, you know it, sin. There you go. Well done. Now, at this point, you might be wondering why in the world are we talking about sin? I thought this sermon was going to be about grace. Here's the relevance of this discussion. If you're following the notes, here's the relevance. Your view of sin will, by necessity, determine your view of grace. Your view of sin will, by necessity, determine your view of grace. In other words, if you take Pelagius' side and you think of sin as something outside of you, as simply a bad example, then grace will be defined as nothing more than a little help to keep you from making bad decisions. If that's the case, then you don't need grace alone. But grace plus all you can do, as the Book of Mormon says. But if you take Augustine's side and believe sin to be within you, a type of spiritual infection that has attacked the core of your inner being, then grace will be magnified to the utmost. Then you will understand that you need more than just a little help. 
Your spiritual condition requires something way more powerful, way more powerful. But let's leave Augustine and Pelagians for, for now and fast forward about a thousand years to the 16th century, the Reformation era. Following Pelagius' idea that humans are essentially good, although in a milder form, was another man by the name of Desiderius Erasmus. Erasmus. He believed that even though sin had affected our entire being, one aspect of our life was not really touched by sin, the human will. The will was free and therefore able to be the final determiner of one's destiny. An idea known as semi-pelagianism, what? all right? Not full Pelagianism, but semi-pelagianism. You need grace, yes, but not grace alone. The final decision regarding your salvation is yours. So it's grace plus human response, human contribution. In response to that idea and following Augustine's view, a monk from Germany answered, no, that's not right. His name was Martin Luther. Have you heard of them? the name? Yes. For Luther, the will is not free, but bound to sin. In other words, sin has so penetrated the inner life that even the will is bound to sin. We are a slave to sin. Therefore, there is no such thing as free will in the strict sense of the word. All wills are ultimately operating under the mastery or the principle of sin. Therefore, the will can only obey its master, meaning sin. Again, what I said a few minutes ago, your view of grace will depend on which side you take, right? It will depend on which side you take. If you go with Erasmus and you think the human will is free, grace can make you savable and lead you in the right direction, but the final choice is ultimately yours. No need for grace alone. But if you go with Luther, grace is nothing less than God's mighty act of liberation of your will from slavery to what? Sin. For Luther, grace was actually radical. It was a radical idea, and my friend, this makes all the difference in the world. For Erasmus, grace was divine help. For Luther, grace was divine power. Power. What does Scripture say? At the end of the day, that's what matters most. So let's look at the scriptural case for sola gratia. The scriptural case. We have seen a little bit of the history of it. Now let's look at the Scripture. The first point is this, the human condition demands sola gratia. The human condition demands sola gratia. Let's consider verses 1 through 3 once again of Ephesians 2. And you were what? Sick? You were a little ill? Huh? No, you had a fever. No, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. If what I said a few moments ago is true, that your understanding of sin determines your view of grace, then we must take a closer look at the biblical doctrine of sin. Why did Augustine and Luther come to a very similar conclusion regarding grace? The answer is this, because of why they believed what they believed about sin. Let's follow the logic. 
Where did they begin? They started by looking at the human condition as described by Scripture. And here's the first thing we see in verses 1 through 3. Men are captive to sin, not free. Men are captive to sin, not free. So sin in the mind of the Reformers was more than just an external force that exercises influence from outside as if Adam just gave us a bad example. Sin in the Bible, and according to the Reformers, is portrayed as a powerful master that not only influences humans, but actually rules over them with incredible force. Sin is deeply rooted in the heart of man. This is why Luther wrote The Bondage of the Will. For Luther, sin was an enemy that no human can defeat, and no human will can ultimately overcome. Of course, the Reformers read the entire testimony of Scripture, and they became convinced that sin is an all-encompassing reality. It affects everything from the intellect to our emotions to our ability to choose, meaning even our will. Everything is captive to the power of sin. Because of the pervasive nature of sin then, because of our slavery to sin, we can't even make a move toward God. Consider how the Bible speaks of sin. The Lord Jesus, in John chapter 8, verse 34, he spoke of sin like this. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. This is the radical nature of sin. To explain the spiritual condition in which we are born, Jesus used the language of slavery, while Paul, in Ephesians chapter 2, used the language of death. Both are really, really bad, if you ask me. Dead people cannot give life to themselves, much like slaves cannot free themselves. Otherwise, they would not be slaves. And these two realities, death and slavery, convey the same idea helplessness and hopelessness. This is you and this is me in our natural state. We are dead in our sins. We are slaves to our sin. And my friends, let's acknowledge this. We know this to be true because left to ourselves, we would always choose sin and evil unless God intervenes. In fact, Notice with me the language the Apostle Paul uses to describe the manifestation of spiritual death in our lives in verses 2 and 3. He used action verbs. Notice that. Action verbs. Walking. Walking. Following. Following. Living. Carrying out. Yes, spiritual death is helpless and hopeless, but there is nothing passive about it. There is nothing passive about it. Spiritual death is not passive indifference toward God. Listen to this. Spiritual death is not passive indifference toward God, but active engagement with sin against him. That's sin. That's why sin is so evil. And that's why sin makes us all bound to hell, because it's an active engagement against God. That's what it means to be spiritually dead and a slave to sin. And it all comes from within, brothers and sisters. It didn't come from the outside. Now here Paul makes an astonishing statement. He says that we were carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. Well, isn't that a good thing? Huh? Don't we hear the world telling us all the time, follow your heart? Just follow your heart. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? That would only be true 
if you and I had a good heart or if evil were really a reality that existed only outside of us. And that's what many want to believe. The famous singer Lady Gaga, whom I do not listen to, by the way, but uh, she was speaking at a public event and she said this, please do not forget, and I'm quoting here, I'm quoting, this is a quote from Lady Gaga. I don't agree with it. Quote, please don't forget hatred or evil, whatever you want to call it, it's intelligent, it is smart, it is invisible, it doesn't have a color, it doesn't have a race, it doesn't have a religion, it has no politics, it's an invisible snake. Not sure what she meant by invisible snake, but did you notice how she spoke of evil? Did you notice? It's outside of you. It's outside of you somewhere out there. You are not the problem because evil is somewhere out there. You just don't let it get to you. Don't let it come in. Evil is outside of you, and the solution to our problems is found inside of us. Nothing new, right? Eve blamed the serpent. Adam blamed Eve. The problem is always outside of us, isn't it? Much like the Jews of Jesus is in Paul's time, people often think of themselves as autonomous, free people, as slaves to no one. But Jesus said, Mark chapter 7, verse 21 and 23, For from within, out of the heart of men, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from outside. No. From within. From within. Michael Horton said it this way, quote, The ultimate tragedy of man's self-understanding is that he believes himself to be free, has all the feelings of a free agent, but does not realize that he is a slave to sin and serves the will of Satan. Pelagius and Erasmus were wrong, fatally wrong, terribly wrong. Left to the freedom of our will, so-called freedom, we would always side with evil and sin. It is within us. We are infected to the core of our being. Are you encouraged? And we are helpless and we are hopeless in and of ourselves to change that reality. That's the bad news. As the prophet Jeremiah said, the day you are able to change the color of your skin will be the day you are able to change the evil nature of your heart. Ultimately, the problem with man is that he can't stop being who he is. The bad tree will always bear bad fruit, much like sinful man will always love sin because he's dead. As the song says, no separation from the world, no work I do. I'm giving you a little bit of the melody so you remember it. No gift I give can cleanse my conscience, cleanse my hands. I cannot cause my soul to live. Therefore, if divine grace really is a matter of God helping those who do their best then we are, of all people, to be hopeless. Augustine and Luther were right. 
in light of the clear teaching of Scripture and in light of the deplorable, miserable, helpless, and hopeless spiritual condition of man, the Reformers became convinced that grace cannot be understood as the cooperation between God and man, as though we could contribute anything, but as the work of God alone. All of this leads us to the second point, as we continue to build a case for sola, sola scriptura, I'm sorry, sola gratia, from Scripture. Here's the second point. The nature of God explains sola gratia. The nature of God explains sola gratia. So we saw that the, the human condition demands sola gratia, but now we're, we're going to see that the nature of God actually explains sola gratia. If sin is as deep and as pervasive as the Bible teaches and as the Reformers were convinced, then, here's the first point or sub-point, grace must be rooted in the character of God alone. Grace must be rooted in the character of God alone. Verse 4, But God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, the language could not be any more straightforward than this. Notice that it doesn't say in verse 4, the transition is not, but you who were so lovable. It doesn't say that. It says, but God. Because grace begins with God. Why? Because spiritual life always begins with God. John Calvin, the leading reformer in the city of Geneva, said it well, quote, because of the bondage of sin by which the will is held bound, it cannot move toward good, much less apply itself thereto. For a movement of this sort is the beginning of conversion to God, which in Scripture is ascribed entirely to God's grace. End quote. By all means, I will be the first one to admit the fact that grace, this divine, amazing grace, is counterintuitive, is it not? Our human nature tells us that in order for me to show grace, I must first and foremost find a worthy subject upon which to bestow my grace. That's the way we think. A few years ago, I heard a song that expresses this kind of thinking. It says, quote, Jesus, help me believe that I am someone worth dying for. Now, as a Protestant, I feel the need to prote protest against that song because it diminishes the grace of God. My friend, God loves me because of who he is. Because of who he is. Read again later on, if you want, verses 1, 2, and 3, and tell me what is so attractive about us. Do that exercise. I challenge you. Find something attractive about us that God said, Whoa, I want to give them my grace. They are worthy of it. No. God loves us because of who he is. Let me ask you this. Why did your mother love you when you were a baby? <laughs> Why did your mother love you when you were a baby? What did you do as a baby to earn that love? You know the answer, right? You did nothing other than provide countless dirty diapers and puking all over the place. A mother loves her baby simply because it is in her nature to love the baby. Multiply that by infinity. That is God. That is God. He is gracious because He is gracious. It is in His nature and His character. Therefore, God doesn't give grace to those who do their best or to those who prove themselves worthy. God doesn't help those who help themselves. 
If that were the case, no one in this room would know God's grace at all. God gives his grace because he is good, period. I am reminded of the great hymn in which the writer says, Jesus sought me when a stranger wandering from the fold of God. In other words, Jesus sought me when I had nothing to offer. Jesus sought me when I opposed him. But at the end of the day, Jesus sought me and Jesus found me. This is grace. Second or third or fourth, I I lost count. Grace is not a divine sentiment or a feeling, but effectual power to save or to give life. Verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. This was Luther's conclusion. As he was forced to study the issue of grace, he began to see a revolutionary truth, and it was this. If sin has the power to create death, listen to this. If sin has the power to create death, grace must have the power to do what? To create life. Grace must be the counterpart of sin. And if sin is powerful enough to kill us, Grace must be powerful enough to revive us. This is divine grace, and this is why grace is alone. Grace is not only divine favor toward unworthy sinners, but divine power to give them life. Let me try to explain it this way. While I was growing up, in, in, in my understanding of grace was quite limited. I thought of grace uh, of God as God offering us a gift and then leaving the rest up to me. In other words, I conceived of grace as God doing his part for my salvation, meaning sending Jesus, and me doing my part for my salvation, making the right choice for Jesus. But how can I make the right choice when all I want is to please my flesh? That's the point. How can I choose God when I'm under the influence of the world, Satan, and the flesh? How can I stop loving sin? How can I choose God if I'm dead? If I could put it in more biblical language, my view of grace was like Jesus going to the tomb of Lazarus and just waiting outside for the dead body to come out. How long would that take? Right? But oh, my friend, now I understand that grace is more than God simply giving you an an option to be saved, an invitation to to be saved. Now I understand that grace is like Jesus going to the tomb of Lazarus, removing the stone himself and commanding Lazarus to come out of the tomb. Because with the divine word comes the divine power. That is grace. That is amazing grace. Interestingly enough, Charles Wesley, in his well-known hymn titled, And Can't It Be, explained the work of God in us with these words. Quote, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye, God, diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. That is grace alone. This is grace alone. When God calls, when God calls, dead people come out of their tombs. Baptist theologian Tom Strainer said it well. Quote, grace is not merely unmerited favor in the sense that one may choose to receive or reject a gift. 
Grace is rather the impartation of life. Grace is a power that raises someone from the dead, that lifts those in the grave into new life. Grace is not merely an undeserved gift, though it is such. It is also transforming power. Grace imparted life when we were dead, and grace also raises us and seats us with Christ in the heavenly places. But Paul said it best in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Can you say the same? By the grace of God, I am what I am. One of the greatest pictures of grace is the Exodus. The Exodus. If you think about it, the Exodus was not just God inviting his people to leave Egypt and turn to him. Rather, the Exodus was God destroying slavery by his own power and bringing his people out to himself so that it might serve him. That, my friend, is how divine grace operates. It doesn't wait for the slave to free himself or for the dead soul to raise itself. Grace does for the sinner what the sinner cannot do for himself, meaning everything. Grace does everything for us. And if you're here this morning, you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, it's because of grace and grace alone. Grace is the power that transfers you from death to life and from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. So what's the big deal? Let's bring this to a conclusion. What's the big deal? What happens if we miss this? Well, this is a highly consequential doctrine. And there is a reason why the reformers fought the good fight to recover it, even at great loss. So here are the dangers of denying sola gratia. Some of the dangers of denying sola There are many more, but I want to get these from the verses themselves. The first danger of denying sola gratia, letter A, God's glory in salvation is diminished. God's glory in salvation is diminished. If you deny sola gratia, this is what happens. Why are there Christians in the world? There are Christians in the world to do what verse 7 says, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. I know this for certain. We are not the center of our salvation. God is. Salvation is not more, is more than just the granting of forgiveness to sinners. It is the display of God's glory, which is reflected in the very fact and the glorious fact that God's plan of redemption is not contingent on secondary causes, but that grace is powerful enough to work alone. Listen, I know my theology is not perfect. No one in this room can say that. I'm going to make an argument that many of you are not going to like. It's fine. My theology is not perfect. I know that. I have blind spots. I can make mistakes. I can make errors, just like you. That's, that's news to you, huh? But if I'm going to make a mistake, if I'm going to err in my theology, I want to err on the side of ascribing too much glory to God. Way too much glory to God for everything that he has done in me, for me, and through me. I certainly don't want to make the opposite mistake. Well, you know, God made, he's responsible for 99% of my salvation. I'll take the 1%. No, I don't want to do that. I'm not admitting a mistake here. I'm not admitting error. I believe we are correct as Reformed Christians. But I certainly don't want to err, err in giving God less than he, what he deserves, and he deserves all 
the glory for everything in my life. When you praise God for your salvation, here's my invitation. When you praise God for your salvation, don't leave anything out of that praise. Praise him for everything. Now, this is my second danger. Okay? Self-righteousness is promoted. If we deny sola gratia, self-righteousness is promoted. It, it, it is. It is the, the logical conclusion. As I said, when you praise God for the salvation he has provided for you in Christ and by the Spirit, you are free to thank him for everything. Yes, thank God for everything of your salvation, even your, your faith. Don't leave faith out. Right? Can anybody say, really? I praise God for everything except my faith. That's me. That's on me. Nah. Now, Sola Gratia says you can praise God for everything. Everything about your salvation, even your faith. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Why is faith not a work for which we might boast? Why is faith not a work? Because faith is a gift. That's why faith is not a work. That's why it's not a contribution. It is a gift. It is not a work done by us. And this is precisely what you, why you can come to God in all sincerity and say, thank you for gifting me the faith by which Christ has become mine and I have become his. Let me ask you, what's the alternative? What's the alternative? There is no alternative. You lose sola gratia, you corrupt worship and become boastful. And here's the last danger. The essence of Christianity is destroyed. The essence of Christianity is destroyed. What's the point of sola gratia? What's the bottom line? Or to ask it another way, what's a stake in this conversation about sola gratia? Here's what's at stake. It is the following question. You ready? What is a Christian? What is a Christian? I'm going to give you three options. Okay, are you ready? A Christian is a self-creation of man alone, a shared creation of God and man cooperating together, or God's creation alone. That's an important question because it is a question of who gets the glory. Who gets the glory and if you have any doubt as to who, who gets the glory in what a Christian is, consider verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What is a Christian? It is the creation of God's grace alone. Any other alternative is a corruption of grace. You are a Christian because God made you one. Imagine if Jesus had said, I will build my church contingent upon sinners doing their part, of course. Thankfully, that's not what he said. Without hesitation or trepidation, Jesus simply said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. If the gates of hell cannot do anything to stop Jesus from building his own church, what can mere man do? Nothing. 
The church building project, project is on its way. The architect is Jesus himself operating by the Spirit and the Word. The building will be finished. If that analogy doesn't help you, think of the church as the bride of Christ. Guess what? The bride is not forming herself up. Jesus is creating his own bride. It is his bride after all. He knows her. He loves her. He died for her, and he will return for her. So as Peter said in Acts chapter 15, verse 11, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise God for sola gratia. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this simple yet timely reminder of things that are critical, essential, that we are who we are because of grace. We thank you that death was not an enemy powerful enough to keep you from bringing us to yourself. Thank you that Christ placed himself under the curse of death. But then on the third day, he broke the curse forever. And so forever we are grateful to you And so we thank you for the entirety of our salvation, everything from beginning to end. It is to your glory and your glory alone. And if there's anybody here, Father, who does not know you, may you grant them the grace so that they might believe in the one who died for our sins and rose again. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen.